How many of you think that Bible study, at best, is tedious? I got two people to raise your hand. So I could have said at worst, right? <laughs> at best, it's wonderful for some, but for some, it's just very difficult. It's taxing. In fact, when we talk about studying the Bible, some of us have a hard time just reading it. I mean, I remember I took a year before I could pronounce Thessalonica, and I still messed up just a little bit. <laughs> A year. You read it and you just, you, your tongue gets twisted because you're not used to all these words. And so when it comes to reading the Bible, it is in fact taxing. I know that when I read magazines or things on websites, why is it that I can just read and read and read? I don't get tired, but when I read the scriptures, I'm absolutely worn out. I'm still reading words. But there's something about the scriptures that are so weighty. It's like carrying weights. And as you go and walk your miles, if you will, it taxes your mind. Why is that? Why is the Bible, in fact, so taxing for many of us when we read? And the reason why I ask that question is because while this is pretty much an unorthodox-like sermon, we have to deal with these things because this helps everything else that we're talking about when we're having Bible studies, when we're trying to reach the gospel to the lost, and we want to be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Yet, for us, it's difficult. Many of us have difficulty reading scriptures. Now, I can give you all, in my thought, my opinions as to world reasons. We watch a lot of TV. Our minds are inundated with entertainment. We are a 30-minute, fast-paced society. We're packaged in nuggets of information. And the Bible doesn't work that way. So maybe from a worldly standpoint, there's some reasons. But, you know, when we look at other reasons, sometimes it's just difficult to understand. This morning in, in Bible class, I'm asking questions in the auditorium. You know, like, remember Kiriath Arba? And I got all these blank looks <laughs> going, let me back up. Hebron, that didn't help much. I just heard that word, Hebron. Hebron is more familiar to me, but Kiriath Arba? And when David, I know David, he's the king of Israel, you know. So it's, some things are difficult, especially when we get into those Old Testament passages. Sometimes it's just overwhelming. I mean, when you look at the number of facts, names, places, events, and you put them all together, it is, in fact, very overwhelming. So we might want to study the New Testament and maybe some of the shorter books because then it's easier to kind of go through those things. Sometimes we just think it's out of date. And I'm speaking generally. I'm not talking about us you know, individually, one by one here. Generally, that's what I hear from many. And, uh, and others that may not say it may kind of show it by their demeanor. It's out of date. It's kind of so 20 centuries ago, you know. It's not relevant to my life. And I'll tell you, I believe some of the preaching that goes on. In fact, I'll just rephrase what I just said. A lot of the preaching today is not very relevant to what's going on in our lives. And so we have a disconnect and we have no urgency among Christians, let alone people in the world, to read the scriptures or to study it. And so if reading is taxing, 
even though we could read novels and magazines and other things like that, then how much more would Bible studies be? I believe many of us don't study our Bibles. When it comes to dealing with questions, we hear things from what someone else has said. We might have read things in the sermons. We might open the Bible from time to time. But regular diet of study in Scripture is pretty minimal. There's a lot of times that we just don't know what we're dealing with when it comes to Scriptures. That's not a good thing. We were told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, how enlivening God's Word is. How it pierces. Does it? If God's Word is so piercing, does it not motivate you? You see, I think when we talk about Bible study and things of this nature, I believe we need to have a, a reason why we open up God's Word. And I'll tell you, if I don't have a reason... There's not much purpose. And we can go through some of these mechanical things. I'm going to look at this um, for just a minute. I mean, naturally, the reason for understanding God's word and the reason for studying his word is so that we can build each other up. Right. The purpose of studying God's word as we draw closer to him is to also draw closer to one another. And so we're told in Second Timothy, chapter two and verse 15 to do what? To be diligent. To present yourself approved before God. A man not ashamed, but rightly handling the word of truth. I combined about four translations into that paraphrase, if you will. But you, get, you have some that says study to show yourself approved. Others be diligent. Show yourself diligently or whatever along those lines. But it is to be approved before God that we're edified. Built up in his word, through his word, to his glory. We know that we study God's word so we can reach the lost. I mean, that's why we're studying and having Bible studies here at the building. It's not just to say, well, we're doing a time of Bible study. We're filling up an hour. It's something to do. We're more spiritually minded if we do it. It's not any of that. It's to take what information we have and let the world know who God is. And let them know that Jesus Christ came into this world, died for us. And we can go through the scriptures and reason for the hope that lies within us so that when those who hear the message of the gospel can, by the power of the gospel, be saved. That's a reason for us studying his word. Now, I'm not talking about being Bible scholars. I'm not talking about us being lawyers. I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking about simply opening up God's word and doing our best to understand it. To glorify him. Real simple. That's why we study the scriptures. Ultimately, it is my opinion that we study so that we can just give him glory. Draw closer to him. You know, a couple of weeks ago when we were at Camp Tennessee, I asked the 11th graders and the 6th, 7th, 8th graders. I asked them, I said, so we know why we're supposed to be learning God's word, learning his way. But why don't we? Why aren't we really spending that time in his word? And some gave various answers until someone, in my opinion at least, nailed it straight on. And it was both the 11th graders and 6th graders that got this answer. They said, 
until we appreciate what God has done for us. I mean, genuinely appreciate what He's done for us by His saving grace through the blood of His Son. Until then, we won't have that genuine relationship. And if we don't have that genuine relationship, there, that desire is not really there. It's more like a duty, more like a stewardship. And there are times when it feels that way to me. I'll be honest. Don, you're an honest man. <laughs> it is. It's taxing. It's hard. And you just don't go out and run a marathon the first day you try and get up and put your shoes on and tie your shoelaces. It takes time, training. And the same thing is with God's Word. When we're studying it, it is a taxing thing. But once you get disciplined by it, there are some really good fruit that can be had. And best of all, you're talking about edifying your brethren, standing approved before God, reaching the gospel to the lost. But that's because there's purpose. And without that purpose, you're just not going to have that urgency. In Acts chapter 8, remember when Philip is going up and, and he meets the eunuch on the way back to Ethiopia. And the eunuch, as he is reading there, he's approached by Philip and Philip says, do you understand what you read? He says, how can I? Unless someone teaches or guides me. I, I don't know. You know, this person here, I'm reading out of Isaiah. And who is this speaking of? Some prophet or who, you know, who is it? But because Philip knew Jesus Christ, because he knew God's word, he was able to take him from that moment and bring him to Jesus Christ. From these Old Testament scriptures. We have to understand that there is a sense of purpose, a sense of urgency about the things that we are doing as to the reason why we open up God's Word to begin with. So that when we're faced with that, that opportunity, door knocking opportunity, if you will, the door is open. Now, am I going to take advantage of that? You can because you know the will of God. You know the Word of God to be able to explain it to someone who is searching for Him. And without that urgency, then there's no drive. There's no motivation. I can tell you, there was, I go through peaks and valleys, personally. Uh, there's probably preachers that, that have this high urgency for a lot longer than I am. Others that maybe don't even study much. Mine, I have peaks and valleys. I remember there a time when, when after I obeyed the gospel, I spent so much time studying God's word. All I did was get my collegiate studies out of the way. Literally, get it done so that I can study God's Word, so that I could teach all these other college students on campus the Gospel. My mind was filled with God's Word. Every which way I went, I saw Scriptures floating around in my head. But there's an urgency. And that urgency motivated me to open up His Word. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. A great time, a season, that, that that urgency was so prevalent. Brethren, that's what we need if we're going to open up God's Word and take the time to study. But saying all of these things doesn't mean anything without that desire. It doesn't matter if we want to edify, but oh, I still don't want to study. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to have urgency, but I really don't. I mean, there's other issues going on, and those for other lessons down the road. The fact remains, brethren, without desire, we're just not going to be opening up God's Word. And I'll even say this. 
I believe here at the building, let alone at home, unless there's that desire, we'll just open it up when it's time to come. We'll put in minimal time at home. Just make sure, you know, we look like we're prepared. Kind of being blunt about things. But it happens. It happens to so many of us. Brethren, that desire has got to be there first and foremost. The lesson this morning is not about the desire. I'm hoping that that's something we will have on our own accord. That decision that we make between us and God. What I want to talk about is for those that have that desire, but we don't know how to go about studying the Scriptures. And brethren, what I'm going to share this morning is very simple, extremely simple, but it's a lifelong practice that helps you to get better at your tools. I remember when, when I was growing up, my dad gave me my first hammer, my first saw, and I took a block of wood. And I sawed into that wood, and I made the most horrendous, ugly-looking stool you ever saw in your life. I didn't know how to use my tools. And later on, I just didn't use tools. I just, whatever I had, that's what I used for my hammer. <laughs> it was not a hammer. I just, you, you know, if you don't have the right tools, kind of hard to do things. And even if you have the right tools, naturally, that's how you use it. So we're talking about an attitude. You have to have that desire. You have to have an attitude that says, okay, I'm going to just start where I'm at. And where I'm at is right here. I don't know much about these things, but I'm going to go ahead and start right now. So attitude is going to be key. Perseverance is going to be another key. Learning is just going to come over time. Someone said, Mitch, how is it that you learn so much about the Scriptures you forget everything else? <laughs> I don't know. I can tell you, though, I didn't get overnight. I can tell you that 22 years of studying, and I'm still studying, and I can teach God's Word. God blessed me with that ability to teach. Some of us, it's natural. Some of us have photographic memories. I don't have that. Others do. I do have a good memory for Scripture, not anything else, apparently. But you've got to persevere. I've known brethren says, but I've been doing this for 30, 40 years, Mitch. I still have a hard time remembering. It's got to be a lifestyle. And even then, for some, that's just not a talent, remembering these things. It is overwhelming. But like anything else that you do, I mean, I've, I've seen Julie grow as, as not just as a mother and as a wife, but even as a cook, where she was looking at all the ingredients and down to the nitty-gritty, and now she just throws things together. And it turns out great. You just get comfortable in the environment that you're in. And the same thing is going to be said for reading and studying God's Word. It happens. But you've got to persevere. And the last part is just reading, reading, reading. It's amazing that you can read a passage of Scripture 20 times, and on the 21st time, you're like, I didn't know that was there. But you've got to persevere in that reading. Keep going on. When you do, pretty soon all these events start like connect the dots. And they start connecting, and pretty soon you see the picture. Eventually, that picture gets clearer. It gets brighter. It's more clarified in every aspect that you can imagine. So that when you look at God's Word, you see the big picture and the details. That's what happens when you have good attitude, when you persevere with your Bible studies, and when you just simply read God's Word over and over again. That's what's going to happen. So, 
You've got the desire, let's say. But now you need the tools. And I'm going to tell you right now, you can study the Bible just by reading it. I, I, right now, you don't need a single thing. Don't need it. It's been going on for centuries, right? People have studied God's Word for centuries without all these extra books, a library, and so on and so forth. Well, I've got to tell you, tools are very, very good. Tools greatly enhance the efficiency, the speed by which you grow. I'm tell you as well, and I, I made this in a class about a year ago when we first moved here. I think it was the end of July or something. I started teaching this class, Effective Bible Study, here at the building in that back room. And one of the things we talked about were these tools that help us. And one of the points I focused on in that class, and I'm only going to say this just for a few seconds, is this. Something for you to chew on. These tools you can get for free, and these tools can be very expensive. And when I tell you some of the prices, some of you are like, how could you afford Bible software? Or how could you afford a library of books? Because you can have an endless sea of books that cost tens of thousands, if not more, of, of your money. But I've made this point. I asked, you know, if I were to ask you in the last one year, had you made any big purchases? Most of you probably would say yes. Whether it's a vehicle, whether it's a remodeling, whether it's a new living room suite or bedroom suite, or whether it's one of those shiny little things that you can do all kinds of fun stuff with, like phone calls and text messages and everything else under the sun with those things. Whatever it is, and guarantee you, you've spent the money and you think it's well worth it. So I want to ask you, how worth it is Bible tools to learning God's Word effectively? I want you to think about that. If I had more time, I would get into it in detail. But you need these tools, in my opinion, because with, without it, uh, without insufficient tools, or with insufficient tools, it's no different than just reading the Scriptures. You can still get by, but you're not going to have that aid that you'd want to have. And I'm going to share with you some of these things right now. I want you to look at having multiple translations. Yeah, I have brethren that King James only. You're going to be lost without... Any, any translation other than King James, you're gone. Your soul is just not going to be with the Lord. This is the divinely inspired translation. I've been told that. I've heard it. I've heard preachers preach it. I'll tell you, when you have different kinds of translations, for instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, study to show thyself approved. And so we talk about, oh, what a great passage for the sermon. Study to show yourself approved. But, you know, other translations don't say study. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved. That's a very different phrase than study. So there's something, you know, with having multiple translations that is very helpful without any other tools. It's easy to read. You can go to like Acts, was it Acts chapter 12, I believe. In, in the King James translation, it uses the word Easter. But all the other translations never say Easter. It says Passover. And years later we find out, Easter is just, it's completely wrong translation. Just not even a, it's no, nothing proper or accurate about it at all. So having multiple translations gives you a sense of understanding a passage. You can read like the King James and then go all the way over to 
like the Lexham English Bible, a great new Bible just recently came out. Make every effort to present yourself approved to God. That sounds good. Sounds even stronger, more personal than be diligent. So translations, brethren, spend the time, spend the money. Get translations. And you know, on the Internet, you can get them for free. Have different websites and you can actually look at them side by side by side on any passage. Translation is very good. Here's one that looks kind of funny, but I'm telling you, this will bring great joy to your studies. It's called an interlinear. And what you're looking at right here is, in a sense, a reverse interlinear. Interlinears, you typically have the original language and then you have it in English. And then you've got all these other tools. In this case, you've, you've got like these numbers in blue. Those are like Strong's Concordance numbers. So you've got these kinds of things, and other interlinears have more reference tools like that. But the interlinear, what is so good, is it helps you to take English words and know what you're actually reading. For instance, in John 21, 15, Jesus is with his disciples, and he has a conversation with Peter, and he says, it says um, to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well, if we just read it in English, it just sounds very much like, uh, yeah, you know, I love you. But when you get the original language, even without knowing the original language, and yes, it can be dangerous to use original language and not know what you're dealing with. But in this case, this is real easy. Look at this. He says, do you agapao me? Do you have the kind of love for me, like the one that God, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son? The kind of love that looks out for the, the interest in someone else? That kind of love. Is that the kind of love you have for me? And Peter says, yes, I have a friendly affection for you. Wait, that's not what Jesus was asking. Jesus is saying, do you have the kind of love for me that I have for you, that I'm sacrificing my life? Yes, I have that kind of love for you. It's a friendly, friendliness toward you. It's not, see, he was responding with a phileo love. In English, it's the word love. But in the original language, it's something different. Interlinears are very helpful. And they're all over stores. And you can, get, again, on the website, free. You can use them for Bible study. And it's very, very helpful when you're looking at certain things, when you're studying on certain things. Very, very good for you. So you've got an interlinear. You've got different Bible translations. Well, how about that concordance? Remember, let me go back over here. Go back to this. Remember those blue words? So here's the word for John. And it's 2491 in the Strong's Concordance for Greek words. So you look up 2491 in your Strong's Concordance, and you can find it. And when you go to that word, look at what you get. So here you've got agapao, and you can look up Strong's or other dictionaries that use Strong's numbers. And you can say, okay, here's how you say it. Agapaho, and you know how to pronounce it, generally speaking. And where it comes from and everything. And then you get a little information about the word. To love in a social or moral sense to be loved. So that's the way that word is used right here. I use the word as one where you give yourself over to someone's needs, looking out for the best interest. But that's basically what we're talking about. Whereas... 5368, the same word love in John 21, 15, is phileo, to be a friend, to have a fond affection for. Very different word. 
Strong's Concordance. Brethren, we should all have these tools in our home. There's, you can buy this for less than $10 at the store. We have a library here. Oh, I don't know why I'm using the laser back there. <laughs> right back in there. We have a library, and it's got all kinds of Strong's Concordances. It'd be great if every one of them were checked out and used regularly. For those that don't go onto the website, don't use software, use the library. We've got all kinds of books. We have a brother who's given a number of books to the library, a number of brethren have over the years. Very, very good resource for these concordances. Or how about maps? You know, when we read the scriptures and all you do is open up your Bible and you hear all these names, it's easy to simply go... It's too difficult to go find out in the very back where they are. I'm telling you, it enriches your life. This morning when we were in 2 Samuel chapter 1 in the auditorium class, you can read of when, when the people of Saul who were loyal to him and the people of David coming from different areas and they meet up near Mount Gilboa, south of Mount Gilboa. And you can read of, of certain passages the way it's written when, when the... Israelite armies would go to battle against the Philistines. And you can see that in the poetic writing of this lamentation. Things just come to life. Just because you have a map. It is because of a map, brethren. I've never been to Jerusalem. Never been there. But in my mind's eye, I walk the streets pretty regularly. And it's pretty cool. I love picking that corner or going around that hippodrome. I don't know if, Phil, you've seen that hippodrome? <laughs> in Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, what we see today is very different, actually, because most of it is in ruins or not, not even there. When you go to Solomon's porch, or what we call the Western Wall, and see one end to the other end of the temple, when you can actually walk the steps, if you are a male Jew, going from the Gentile courtyard to the women's courtyard to the regular courtyard and looking up to where the priests would be on the next level. Pretty amazing. But that's what these atlases, these maps, these illustrations are able to do for us. When we can actually look at the Rosetta Stone, when we can look at um, the writings of Sennacherib or Ahasuerus or Cyrus, and actually go to the British Museum. Or if not, we can't afford that. We can look at pictures that are there at the British Museum. And look at these writings. Phenomenal. To know that these are not just pictures of, of things that people have just found. But based upon biblical events. It just brings your Bible study to life. And causes you to have more context in what you're doing because of what you're reading. So maps, very, very helpful. In my opinion, and I have a very strong opinion about this, I think there's nothing better in the world when it comes to Bible study than Bible software. For all that is good about opening a book and maybe smelling, I don't care much for the smell personally, but others do, and handling it in your hands, me, it's overrated. What's underrated is having everything at your fingertip. Having your software where when you mouse, you tick your mouse and you go over a word and there's your definition without doing a thing. You're not even, you're not even going to your library, getting a book out, turning to a page, trying to find something. You just mouse over it and within seconds you have a definition. 
or click on it and you have 20 different dictionaries about that one word. Or to look at what it is in the original language and how it was used classically over the centuries. Things like that you just can't do with a book. Cross-references. You know in your Bibles, most of you have regular Bibles, but they'll have cross-references in them. And it takes you to other places in the Bible like, where is that Habakkuk anyway? Hey, put your mouse right there and there it is. And you can read it. You can click on it and actually go to the book. Where is that? It's somewhere in the Old Testament. You can do that. I think Bible software programs are much, much more powerful, much easier to use than the books. Learning how to use an interlinear, learning how to use a lexicon, which is kind of like an original language dictionary. Using all those tools you can use with Bible software. And many of it you can get for free. In fact, eSword was one of the first free ones that came out. Um, Rick Myers, he lives in Leaper's Fork, created this program that has millions of downloads now for free. One that I'm even liking even more for a free one is called The Word. Go to theword.net. I think it's even better than, than eSword. No offense, Rick Myers. Really good for free stuff. I've been told many, many times, you get what you pay for, right? So as good as free is, some of these paid-for Bible software programs that cost a lot more money, well worth it in some of these cases. The things that you can do that you cannot do in these programs that take your Bible study to an exciting, wonderful level when you really get into God's Word. But if you're not going to be able to afford that, this is hands down, in my opinion, the best new website that is recently come out. It's called MyStudyBible.com. In my estimation, it's much better than you version, which came out a couple of years ago. My Study Bible, and you rent books. Or you can do a lifetime of $100, and you got all the books that are in that library, and it's on a web page. And it's like in a desktop interface where you can just get into word studies, commentaries, whatever you want. Really helpful. It's a very pleasant experience for, for Bible study purposes that I like. Some tools, I mean, some websites can give you great tools, but it's so cluttered, it's hard to get at. This is really, really good. I like this one. Well, for me personally, there's nothing better than, than having a Bible software that you can get your hands on where you can actually have the program be your research assistant. You want to find anything about everything over one book in your library or 10,000 books in your library. And you have that at your fingertips. Your research assistant does all your work. All you do is simply click and you go to a, whether it's a commentary, cross-references. Maybe it's a parallel from Old or New Testament places. Maybe it's going to be uh, links or other references to classical works. Whatever it is, that's what Bible software is able to do for you. Hands down, in my opinion, the best thing that you could ever invest and I mean an investment, literally, your money in. Because it's something about your soul. I cannot even, I, there was so much more. I, was, I mean, I gave, used this as an illustration since we're in John 21 about the word. In this word right here, apistao, right here. That one Greek word is what we have. They had finished breakfast. All those words one Greek word. 
So you get a sense just by using tools like this that you would never get. In, most of us would be going, they, what's the Greek word for that? Had, what's the Greek word for that? Finished. But instead, it's just one word in Greek. That's what you have when you have good Bible software or good tools at your disposal. That's what helps you to grow very quickly in the study of God's Word, in my opinion. So, for all that we're talking about, I believe Bible software is, is so helpful for you. And this is the one I was talking about earlier, the mystudybible.net. Uh, when you first come to here, there's a thing at this top that scrolls, I mean, that kind of pulls down and gives you an introduction to what you can do, sign up, this and that, whatever. But when you get going, you get into the Bible already. I don't know if it's kind of small here. I wish I had a larger font that I'd use. I could have made the font larger. But you can read. There's underlines. And every underline, you hover your mouse over it, and it gives you the background word. And yesterday in the men's breakfast, um, Doug Bain from the West Bank congregation was saying, well, what's this word? And, and I didn't have this on hand uh, for me to just give to him. But if I did, I would have just hovered over the word and says, there's that word that we're looking at. Very helpful when you have the right tools at your disposal for, for those kinds of questions. But those are some of the things that we can look at. But I want to use this one example, and I used it last year in this class. Here's how Bible study can really come alive rather than just read it and it kind of goes over your head. I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 2. It's a great passage and nice segue for um, the invitation at the end of, of this lesson. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he's giving them a, here's what you were like before you had a relationship with God. And so in the, in the first few verses, he lets them know that they were enemies of God and so on and so forth. Well, then following that with um, verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. Aliens or foreigners from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, then he goes on to illustrate it. He says in verse 14, For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who made both one, that is, Gentiles and Jews, and broke down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the division, that is. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinance so as to create in him one new man from the two, thus making peace. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So you read that and it's like, for some of us, it's, okay, I, I don't know what you just read. Someone says, well, we're, we're talking about two. Some are talking about the Old Testament, New Testament, others. I mean, different kinds of illustrations. Here's how. All the tools that are at our disposal today with archaeological findings, various even scientific things that we get, all those things that help when we read God's Word, God's Word is true all by itself. But there are things that help affirm it or confirm it. Here's one of them. 
Back in 1871, there was a man by the name of Gonau. I, I don't know how the French name is pronounced properly, but he found this stone. This is in Herod's temple that he had made. And in this stone was this inscription, all in Greek capitals. And here's what it says. No stranger is to enter within the partition wall and enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his death, which will ensue. It's not like warning, you're going to pay a $500 fine. You pass this wall and you die, and it's your fault. There are 13 of these entries to go from where Gentiles to women, and then women to where the men were, and then from the men to where the priests were. But where the Israelites could enter in, women, men, that was the middle wall of partition. It was a four and a half foot wall, but this high. Four and a half foot wall. And in each of these 13 entries surrounding the temple area, an inscription would be given. Fair warning. What Jesus was teaching and what the Apostle Paul through Christ was teaching was that now that you Gentiles have been brought near, it is as if that middle wall was brought down. And now you don't have just a Gentile courtyard where you cannot come into the sanctuary. All can come into the sanctuary. There's one man in Christ Jesus. You all can go in. We're 2,100 years away from this. But brethren, when we start thinking like a Jew or like a Gentile in the first century because we have this kind of information that's so helpful for us to see the gravity of what's being said. Jews and Gentiles now together? That's blasphemy for a Jew in the first century. But not in Christ Jesus. We're all one. There's no rich and poor, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. He made two men, Jews and those not Jews, and made them all one. These are the kinds of illustrations that are rampant throughout Scripture that you can use that make your Bible studies come to life. Brethren, this is really... I don't know what else to say, but it's really cool. It really is. It helps me to enjoy studying the Scriptures because of tools like this that help us go along. So here's that picture of that, that middle wall right here, right in this area, in this artist's illustration. Four and a half foot, 13 little holes. From where you're sitting, you probably can't even see these. And that's where they would be able to go in. They would take those steps up. Each time you go from where the Gentiles are. Imagine this is where the Gentiles. I'm not finishing the sermon because I stepped down here, by the way. <laughs> Some of you. <laughs> and so you go up this way and here's where the women are. And then you take a few more steps. That's where the men would be. And take another step. And that's where the priests would be. All these different levels. And of course, the temple nine steps up and there is the temple. That's what you have. All you have to do is read the history books, whether it's Josephus or other historians that give you these this information so you can visualize in your head what the temple looked like during the days of Herod the Great and then onward with his, his um, descendants that ruled. So what you had, this barrier, dividing wall, taken down through the cross. Very exciting to actually visualize things like this. 
that made sense to Jews who would read this, made sense to Gentiles who would happen to be in Jerusalem that would see this very place. All right. So here's the bottom line. When it comes to studying God's word, the last thing we need to be reading and studying is just for information's sake. I hate that. But I used to study that way. Like you just get more and more information. Mm -mm. Every ounce of what you have when you study is given over to glorifying God. The information you have is not to be kept to yourself. It's to be used to teach others about how awesome God is, what he's done for us. That's the whole purpose of our Bible studies. When we come here in the mornings, brethren, it is hard to have your mind ready if we're not reading ourselves. Or if our minds aren't focused on, on God. It's hard. And it's hard for teachers to teach that way when our minds aren't along those lines. And if our minds don't see the reason, the purpose, the urgency, then it reflects the way we teach. So whether it's from a study standpoint or teaching others, when you have that purpose, when you have that urgency... It comes across with everyone else. When you talk to them about the gospel, when you talk about things that help you be edified in the teaching of the Lord, in His ways, because it affects you personally. I had someone call me up last month and said, Mr. Mitch, gives you their age, basically. <laughs> I'm not getting much of my Bible studies anymore. I feel like I've hit a plateau. I said, well, is there a reason for studying? Yeah, because God told me to. For some, that's just not much of a reason. I mean, for others, that's enough of a reason. God said so, that's it, I'm going to be studying. I don't know where God says you need to study two hours a day, 20 minutes. I don't know anything like that. What he does say is grow in his grace and in his knowledge. That's not going to happen unless there's that genuine relationship with God. And so the same thing is true with our Bible study. It has to be personal. It has to affect us in that way. And unless we appreciate that salvation given to us by God, there's no desire to draw near to our Savior. And that is the reason why, brethren, so many of our children are leaving the doors as we speak. Mom and Dad have not much of a desire for God's Word. We'll do everything else under the sun except spend quality time drawing near to him. Bible study being one of those things about drawing near to him. And others study out of just stewardship, gaining information, but not out of drawing near to him. See, you've got to have that appreciation for what God has done for you, for you to be thankful and thus desire him, desire his word. Like a lovely letter. And then when we read like Psalm 19, verse 7 following, how wonderful the law of the Lord is, what it does for us. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 10 of Psalm 19, that God's word, his commandments, his teachings, his ordinances are like honey. So when I asked the question at the very beginning, is Bible study taxing? And some of you said yes, it can be. But it can also be like honey to, to us. And it is. When we draw near to Him. When we study His Word. 